Chapter 8 In space travel, you see, said Slarty Bartfast as he fiddled with some instruments in the room of informational illusions, in space travel... He stopped and looked about him. The room of informational illusions was a welcome relief after the visual monstrosities of the central computational area. There was nothing in it. No information, no illusions, just themselves, white walls and a few small instruments which looked as if they were meant to plug into something which Slarty Bartfast couldn't find. Yes, urged Arthur. He had picked up Slarty Bartfast's sense of urgency but didn't know what to do with it. Yes, what? said the old man. You were saying? Slarty Bartfast looked at him sharply. The numbers, he said, are awful. He resumed his search. Arthur nodded wisely to himself. After a while, he realised that this wasn't getting him anywhere and decided that he would say, what, after all? In space travel, repeated Slarty Bartfast, all the numbers are awful. Arthur nodded again and looked round to Ford for help, but Ford was practising being sullen and getting quite good at it. I, I, I was only, said Slarty Bartfast with a sigh, trying to save you the trouble of asking me why all the ship's computations were being done on a waiter's bill pad. Arthur frowned. Why, he said, were all the ship's computations being done on a wait? He stopped. Slarty Bartfast said, because in space travel, all the numbers are awful. He could tell that he wasn't getting his point across. Listen, he said, on a waiter's bill pad, numbers dance. <laughs> you must have encountered the phenomenon. Well, on a waiter's bill pad, said Slarty Bartfast, reality and unreality collide on such a fundamental level that each becomes the other and anything is possible within certain parameters. What parameters? It's impossible to say, said Slarty Bartfast. That's one of them. Strange but true. At, le at least I think it's strange, he added, and I am assured that it's true. At that moment he located the slot in the wall for which he had been searching and clicked the instrument he was holding into it. Uh, do, do not be alarmed, he said, and then suddenly darted an alarmed look at it himself and lunged back. It's... They didn't hear what he said, because at that moment the ship winked out of existence around them and a star battleship the size of a small Midlands industrial city plunged out of the sundered night towards them, star lasers ablaze. A nightmare storm of blistering light seared through the blackness and smacked a fair bit off the planet directly behind them. They gaped, pop-eyed, and were unable to scream. Chapter 9 Another world, another day, another dawn. The early morning's thinnest sliver of light appeared silently. Several billion trillion tons of super-hot exploding hydrogen nuclei rose slowly above the horizon and managed to look small, cold and slightly damp. There is a moment in every dawn when light floats, there is the possibility of magic. Creation holds its breath. The moment passed as it regularly did on Scornshellus Zeta without incident. The mist clung to the surface of the marshes. The swamp trees were grey with it, the tall reeds indistinct. It hung motionless like held breath. Nothing moved.
There was silence. The sun struggled feebly with the mist, tried to impart a little warmth here, shed a little light there, but clearly today was going to be just another long haul across the sky. Nothing moved. A long silence. Nothing moved. Silence. Nothing moved. Very often on Squanchellus Zeta, whole days would go on like this, and this was indeed going to be one of them. Fourteen hours later, the sun sank hopelessly beneath the opposite horizon with a sense of totally wasted effort. And a few hours later it reappeared, squared its shoulders and started on up the sky again. This time, however, something was happening. A mattress had just met a robot. Hello, robot, said the mattress. Blur, said the robot, and continued what it was doing, which was walking round very slowly in a very tiny circle. Happy, said the mattress. The robot stopped and looked at the mattress. It looked at it quizzically. It was clearly a very stupid mattress. It looked back at him with wide eyes. After what it had calculated to ten significant decimal places as being the precise length of pause most likely to convey a general contempt for all things mattressy, the robot continued to walk round in tight circles. We could have a conversation, said the mattress. Would you like that? It was a large mattress and probably one of quite high quality. Very few things actually get manufactured these days, because in an infinitely large universe such as, for instance, the one in which we live, most things one could possibly imagine, and a lot of things one would rather not, grow somewhere. A forest was discovered recently, in which most of the trees grew ratchet screwdrivers as fruit. The life cycle of ratchet screwdriver fruit is quite interesting. Once picked, it needs a dark, dusty drawer in which it can lie undisturbed for years, then one night it suddenly hatches, discards its outer skin which crumbles into dust, and emerges as a totally unidentifiable little metal object with flanges at both ends and a sort of ridge and a sort of hole for a screw. This, when found, will get thrown away. No one knows what it is supposed to gain from this. Nature, in her infinite wisdom, is presumably working on it. No one really knows what mattresses are meant to gain from their lives either. They are large, friendly, pocket-sprung creatures which live quiet private lives in the marshes of Squanchellus Zeta. Many of them get caught, slaughtered, dried out, shipped out and slept on. None of them seem to mind this, and all of them are called Zem. No, said Marvin. My name, said the mattress, is Zem. We could discuss the weather a little. Marvin paused again in his weary circular plod. The dew, he observed, has clearly fallen with a particularly sickening thud this morning. He resumed his walk, as if inspired by this conversational outburst of fresh heights of gloom and despondency. He plodded tenaciously. If he had had teeth, he would have gritted them at this point. He hadn't. He didn't. The mere plod said it all. The mattress flolloped around. This is a thing that only live mattresses in swamps are able to do, which is why the word is not in more common usage. It flolloped in a sympathetic sort of way, moving a fairish body of water as it did so. It blew a few bubbles up through the water engagingly. Its blue and white stripes glistened briefly in a sudden feeble ray of sun that had unexpectedly made it through the mist, causing the creature to bask momentarily. 
Marvin plodded. You have something on your mind, I think, said the mattress, floopily. More than you can possibly imagine, dreared Marvin. My capacity for mental activity of all kinds is as boundless as the infinite reaches of space itself, except, of course, for my capacity for happiness. Stomp, stomp, he went. My capacity for happiness, he added, you could fit into a matchbox without taking out the matches first. The mattress globbered. This is the noise made by a live, swamp-dwelling mattress that is deeply moved by a story of personal tragedy. The word can also, according to the ultra-complete Maxim Megalon Dictionary of Every Language Ever, mean the noise made by the Lord High Sanvilvwag of Hollop on discovering that he has forgotten his wife's birthday for the second year running. Since there was only ever one Lord High Sanvilvwag of Hollop, and he never married, the word is only ever used in a negative or speculative sense and there is an ever-increasing body of opinion which holds that the ultra-complete Maximegalan dictionary is not worth the fleet of lorries it takes to cart its micro-stored edition around in. Strangely enough, the dictionary omits the word floopily, which simply means in the manner of something which is floopy. The mattress globbered again. I sense a deep dejectedness in your diodes, it volued. For the meaning of the word volume, buy a copy of Squamshellus Swamp Talk at any remaindered bookshop, or alternatively buy the ultra-complete Maximegalung Dictionary, as the university will be very glad to get it off their hands and regain some valuable parking lots. And it saddens me. You should be more mattress-like. We live quiet, retired lives in the swamp, where we are content to flollop and volume and regard the wetness in a fairly floopy manner. Some of us are killed, but all of us are called Zem, so we never know which, and globbering is thus kept to a minimum. Why are you walking in circles? Because my leg is stuck, said Marvin simply. It seems to me, said the mattress, eyeing it compassionately, that it is a pretty poor sort of leg. You are right, said Marvin. It is. Voon, said the mattress. I expect so, said Marvin. And I also expect that you find the idea of a robot with an artificial leg pretty amusing. You should tell your friends Zem and Zem when you see them later. They'll laugh if I know them, which I don't, of course, except insofar as I know all organic life forms, which is much better than I would wish to. Ha <laughs> ha. But my life is but a box of worm gears. He stomped around again in his tiny circle around his thin steel peg leg, which revolved in the mud but seemed otherwise stuck. But why do you just keep walking round and round? said the mattress. Just to make the point, said Marvin, and continued round and round. Consider it made, my dear friend, flurbled the mattress. Consider it made. Just another million years, said Marvin. Just another quick million. Then I might try it backwards, just for the variety, you understand. The mattress could feel deep in his innermost spring pockets that the robot dearly wished to be asked how long he had been trudging in this futile and fruitless manner, and with another quiet flurble he did so. Oh, just over the 1.5 million mark, just over, said Marvin airily. Ask me if I ever get bored. Go on, ask me. The mattress did. Marvin ignored the question. He merely trudged with added emphasis. 
I gave a speech once, he said suddenly and apparently unconnectedly. You may not instantly see why I bring the subject up, but that is because my mind works so phenomenally fast and I am, at a rough estimate, thirty billion times more intelligent than you. Let me give you an example. Think of a number. Any number. Um, five, said the mattress. Wrong, said Marvin. You see? The mattress was much impressed by this and realised that it was in the presence of a not unremarkable mind. It willowed along its entire length, sending excited little ripples through its shallow, algae-covered pool. It gupped. Tell me, it urged, of the speech you once made. I long to hear it. It was received very badly, said Marvin, for a variety of reasons. I delivered it, he added, pausing to make an awkward humping sort of gesture with his not exactly good arm, but his arm which was better than the other one, which was dishearteningly welded to his left side. Over there, about a mile distance. He was pointing as well as he could manage, and he obviously wanted to make it totally clear that this was as well as he could manage, through the mist over the reeds to a part of the marsh which looked exactly the same as every other part of the marsh. There, he repeated. I was somewhat of a celebrity at the time. Excitement gripped the mattress. It had never heard of speeches being delivered on Squanchella Zeta, and certainly not by celebrities. Water spattered off it as a thrill glurried across its back. It did something which mattresses very rarely bother to do. Summoning every bit of its strength, it reared its oblong body, heaved it up into the air and held it quivering there for a few seconds whilst it peered through the mist over the reeds at the part of the marsh which Marvin had indicated, observing without disappointment that it was exactly the same as every other part of the marsh. The effort was too much and it flodged back into its pool, deluging Marvin with smelly mud, moss and weeds. I was a celebrity droned the robot sadly, for a short while on account of my miraculous and bitterly resented escape from a fate almost as good as death in the heart of a blazing sun. You can guess from my condition, he added, how narrow my escape was. I was rescued by a scrap metal merchant. Imagine that. Here I am, brain the size of... Oh, never mind. He trudged savagely for a few seconds. He it was who fixed me up with this leg. Hateful, isn't it? He sold me to a mind zoo. I was the star exhibit. I had to sit on a box and tell my story whilst people told me to cheer up and think positive. Give us a grin, little robot, they would shout at me. Give us a little chuckle. I would explain to them that to get my face to grin would take a good couple of hours in a workshop with a wrench, and that went down very well. The speech! urged the mattress. I long to hear of the speech you gave in the marshes. There was a bridge built across the marshes, a cyber-structured hyperbridge, hundreds of miles in length, to carry ion buggies and freighters over the swamp. A bridge? quirrelled the mattress. Here, in the swamp? A bridge, confirmed Marvin, here in the swamp. It was going to revitalise the economy of the Squanchellus system, they spent the entire economy of the Squanchellus system building it. They asked me to open it. Poor fools. It began to rain a little. A fine spray slid through the mist. 
I stood on the platform. For hundreds of miles in front of me and hundreds of miles behind me, the bridge stretched. Did it glitter? enthused the mattress. It glittered. Did it span the miles majestically? It spanned the miles majestically. Did it stretch like a silver thread far out into the invisible mist? Yes, said Marvin. Do you want to hear this story? I want to hear your speech, said the mattress. This is what I said. I said, I would like to say that it is a very great pleasure, honour and privilege for me to open this bridge, but I can't, because my lying circuits are all out of commission. I hate and despise you all. I now declare this hapless cyberstructure open to the unthinking abuse of all who wantonly cross her, and I plug myself into the opening circuits. Marvin paused, remembering the moment. The mattress flurred and glurried. It flolloped, gupped and willamied, doing this last in a particularly floopy way. Vroom! It worfed at last. And was it a magnificent occasion? Reasonably magnificent. The entire thousand-mile-long bridge spontaneously folded up its glittering spans and sank weeping into the mire, taking everybody with it. There was a sad and terrible pause at this point in the conversation, during which a hundred thousand people seemed unexpectedly to say WOP, and a team of white robots descended from the sky like dandelion seeds, drifting on the wind in tight military formation. For a sudden, violent moment, they were all there, in the swamp, wrenching Marvin's false leg off, and then they were gone again in their ship, which said, Foop. You see the sort of thing I have to contend with, said Marvin to the gobbering mattress. Suddenly, a moment later, the robots were back again for another violent incident, and this time, when they left, the mattress was alone in the swamp. He flolloped around in astonishment and alarm, he almost lurgled in fear. He reared himself to see over the reeds, but there was nothing to see. No robot, no glittering bridge, no ship, just more reeds. He listened, but there was no sound on the wind beyond the now familiar sound of half-crazed etymologists calling distantly to each other across the sullen mire. Chapter 10 the body of Arthur Dent span. The universe shattered into a million glittering fragments around it, and each particular shard spans silently through the void, reflecting on its silver surface some single searing holocaust of fire and destruction. And then the blackness behind the universe exploded, and each particular piece of blackness was the furious smoke of hell, and the nothingness behind the blackness behind the universe erupted, and behind the nothingness behind the blackness behind the shattered universe was at last the dark figure of an immense man speaking immense words. These, then, said the figure, speaking from an immensely comfortable chair, were the cricket wars, the greatest devastation ever visited upon our galaxy. What you have experienced... Slarty Bartfast floated past, waving. It's just a documentary, he called out. This is not a good bit. Terribly sorry, trying to find the rewind control. Is what billions upon billions of innocent... 
do not, called out Slarty Bartfast, floating past again, and fiddling furiously with the thing that he had stuck into the wall of the room of informational illusions, and which was in fact still stuck there, agree to buy anything at this point. People, creatures, your fellow beings... Music swelled. Again, it was immense music, immense chords. And behind the man, slowly, three tall pillars began to emerge out of the immensely swirling mist. Experienced, lived through, or more often failed to live through. Think of that, my friends. And let us not forget. And in just a moment I shall be able to suggest a way which will help us always to remember that before the cricket wars, the galaxy was that rare and wonderful thing... A happy galaxy. The music was going bananas with immensity at this point. A happy galaxy, my friends, as represented by the symbol of the Wicked Gate. The three pillars stood out clearly now. Three pillars topped with two cross pieces in a way which looked stupefyingly familiar to Arthur's addled brain. The three pillars thundered the man, the steel pillar which represented the strength and power of the galaxy. Searchlights searched out and danced crazy dances up and down the pillar on the left, which was, clearly, made of steel or something very like it. The music thumped and bellowed. The Perspex pillar, announced the man, representing the forces of science and reason in the galaxy. Other searchlights played exotically up and down the right-hand, transparent pillar, creating dazzling patterns within it and a sudden inexplicable craving for ice cream in the stomach of Arthur Dent. And, the thunderous voice continued, the wooden pillar, representing... And here his voice became just very slightly hoarse with wonderful sentiments. The forces of nature and spirituality! The lights picked out the central pillar. The music moved bravely up into the realms of complete unspeakability. Between them supporting, the voice rolled on, approaching its climax, the golden bale of prosperity and the silver bale of peace. The whole structure was now flooded with dazzling lights, and the music had now, fortunately, gone far beyond the limits of the discernible. At the top of the three pillars, the two brilliantly gleaming bales sat and dazzled. There seemed to be girls sitting on top of them, or maybe they were meant to be angels. Angels are usually represented as wearing more than that, though. Suddenly, there was a dramatic hush in what was presumably meant to be the cosmos and a darkening of the lights. There is not a world, thrilled the man's expert voice, not a civilised world in the galaxy where this symbol is not revered even today. Even in primitive worlds it persists in racial memories. This it was that the forces of cricket destroyed, and this it is that now locks their world away till the end of eternity and with a flourish, the man produced in his hands a model of the wicket gate. Scale was terribly hard to judge in this whole extraordinary spectacle, but the model looked as if it must have been about three feet high. Not the original key, of course. That, as everyone knows, was destroyed, blasted into the ever-whirling eddies of the space-time continuum, and lost forever. This is a remarkable replica, hand-tooled by skilled craftsmen, 
Lovingly assemble using ancient craft secrets into a memento you will be proud to own in memory of those who fell and in tribute to the galaxy. Our galaxy, which they died to defend. Slarty Bartfast floated past again at this moment. Ah, found it, he said. We, we can lose all this rubbish. Just don't nod, that's all. Now, let us bow our heads in payment, intoned the voice, and then said it again, much faster and backwards. Lights came and went. The pillars disappeared. The man gabbled himself backwards into nothing. The universe snappily reassembled itself around them. You get the gist, said Slarty Bartfast. I'm astonished, said Arthur, and bewildered. I was asleep, said Ford, who floated into view at this point. Did I miss anything? They found themselves once again teetering rather rapidly on the edge of an agonisingly high cliff. The wind whipped out from their faces and across a bay on which the remains of one of the greatest and most powerful space battle fleets ever assembled in the galaxy was briskly burning itself back into existence. The sky was a sullen pink, darkening via a rather curious colour to blue and upwards to black. Smoke billowed down out of it at an incredible lick. Events were now passing back by them almost too quickly to be distinguished, and when, a short while later, a huge star battleship rushed away from them as if they had said boo, they only just recognised it as the point at which they had come in. But now things were too rapid. A video-tactile blur which brushed and jiggled them through centuries of galactic history, turning, twisting, flickering. The sound was a mere thin trill. Periodically, throughout the thickening jumble of events, they sensed appalling catastrophes, deep horrors, cataclysmic shocks, and these were always associated with certain recurring images, the only images which ever stood out clearly from the avalanche of tumbling history. A wicket gate, a small hard red ball, hard white robots, and also something less distinct, something dark and cloudy. But there was also another sensation which rose clearly out of the trilling passage of time. Just as a slow series of clicks, when speeded up, will lose the definition of each individual click and gradually take on the quality of a sustained and rising tone, so a series of individual impressions here took on the quality of a sustained emotion, and yet not an emotion. If it was an emotion, it was a totally emotionless one. It was hatred. Implacable hatred. It was cold. Not like ice is cold, but like a wall is cold. It was impersonal. Not like a randomly flung fist in a crowd is impersonal, but like a computer-issued parking summons is impersonal. And it was deadly. Again, not like a bullet or a knife is deadly, but like a brick wall across a motorway is deadly. And just as a rising tone will change in character and take on harmonics as it rises, so again this emotionless emotion seemed to rise to an unbearable, if unheard, scream and suddenly seemed to be a scream of guilt and failure. And suddenly it stopped. They were left standing on a quiet hilltop on a tranquil evening. The sun was setting. All around them softly undulating green countryside rolled off gently into the distance, Birds sang about what they thought of it all and the general opinion seemed to be good. 
A little way away could be heard the sound of children playing, and a little further away than the apparent source of that sound could be seen in the dimming evening light the outlines of a small town. The town appeared to consist mostly of fairly low buildings made of white stone. The skyline was of gentle, pleasing curves. The sun had nearly set. As if out of nowhere, music began. Slarty Bartfast tugged at a switch, and it stopped. A voice said, This! Slarty Bartfast tugged at a switch, and it stopped. I will tell you about it, he said quietly. The place was peaceful. Arthur felt happy. Even Ford seemed cheerful. They walked a short way in the direction of the town, and the informational illusion of the grass was pleasant and springy under their feet, and the informational illusion of the flowers smelt sweet and fragrant. Only Slarty Bartfast seemed apprehensive and out of sorts. He stopped and looked up. It suddenly occurred to Arthur that, coming as this did at the end, so to speak, or rather the beginning of all the horror they had just blurrily experienced, something nasty must be about to happen. He was distressed to think that something nasty could happen to somewhere as idyllic as this. He too glanced up. There was nothing in the sky. They're not about to attack here, are they? he said. He realised that this was merely a recording he was walking through, but he still felt alarmed. Nothing is about to attack here, said Slarty Bartfast in a voice which unexpectedly trembled with emotion. This is where it all starts. This is the place itself. This is cricket. He stared up into the sky. The sky from one horizon to another, from east to west, from north to south, was utterly and completely black. Chapter 11 Stomp, Stomp Were Pleased to be of service. Shut up! Thank you. Stomp, 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 stomp. Were Thank you for making a simple door very happy. Hope your diode's right! Thank you. Have a nice day. Stomp. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Whirr. It is my pleasure to open for you. Zork off! And my satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. I said zork off! Thank you for listening to this message. Stomp, 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 stomp. Wop. Zaphod stopped stomping. He had been stomping around the heart of gold for days, and so far no door had said whop to him. He was fairly certain that no door had said whop to him now. It was not the sort of thing doors said. Too concise. Furthermore, there were not enough doors. It sounded as if a hundred thousand people had said whop, which puzzled him because he was the only person on the ship. It was dark. Most of the ship's non-essential systems were closed down, it was drifting idly in a remote area of the galaxy, deep in the inky blackness of space, so which particular hundred thousand people would turn up at this point and say a totally unexpected whop? He looked about him, up the corridor and down the corridor. It was all in deep shadow. There were just the very dim, pinkish outlines to the doors which glowed in the dark and pulsed whenever they spoke, though he had tried every way he could think of of stopping them. 
The lights were off so that his heads could avoid looking at each other because neither of them was currently a particularly engaging sight and nor had they been since he had made the error of looking into his soul. It had indeed been an error. It had been late one night, of course. It had been a difficult day, of course. There had been soulful music playing on the ship's sound system, of course. And he had, of course, been slightly drunk. In other words, all the usual conditions which bring on a bout of soul-searching had applied, but it had, nevertheless, clearly been an error. Standing now, silent and alone, in the dark corridor, he remembered the moment and shivered. His one head looked one way, and his other, the other, and each decided that the other was the way to go. He listened, but could hear nothing. All there had been was the whop. It seemed an awfully long way to bring an awfully large number of people just to say one word. He started nervously to edge his way in the direction of the bridge. There, at least, he would feel in control. He stopped again. The way he was feeling, he didn't think he was an awfully good person to be in control. The first shock of that moment, thinking back, had been discovering that he actually had a soul. In fact, he'd always more or less assumed that he had one, as he had a full complement of everything else, and indeed two of some things, but suddenly actually to encounter the thing lurking there deep within him had given him a severe jolt. And then to discover, this was the second shock, that it wasn't the totally wonderful object which he felt a man in his position had a natural right to expect, had jolted him again. Then he had thought about what his position actually was, and the renewed shock had nearly made him spill his drink. He drained it quickly before anything serious happened to it. He then had another quick one to follow the first one down and check that it was all right. "'Freedom!' he said aloud. Trillian came onto the bridge at that point and said several enthusiastic things on the subject of freedom. "'I can't cope with it!' he said darkly, and sent a third drink down to see why the second hadn't yet reported on the condition of the first. He looked uncertainly at both of her and preferred the one on the right. He poured a drink down his other throat with the plan that it would head the previous one off at the pass, join forces with it, and together they would get the second to pull itself together. Then all three would go off in search of the first, give it a good talking to, and maybe a bit of a sing as well. He felt uncertain as to whether the fourth drink had understood all that, so he sent down a fifth to explain the plan more fully and a sixth for moral support. "'You're drinking too much,' said Trillian. His heads collided, trying to sort out the four of her he could now see into a whole person. He gave up and looked at the navigation screen and was astonished to see a quite phenomenal number of stars. "'Excitement and adventure and really wild things,' he muttered. "'Look,' she said in a sympathetic tone of voice and sat down near him, "'it's quite understandable that you're going to feel a little aimless for a bit.' He boggled at her. He had never seen anyone sit on their own lap before. Wow, he said. He had another drink. You've finished the mission you've been on for years. I haven't been on it. I've tried to avoid being on it. You've still finished it. He grunted. There seemed to be a terrific party going on in his stomach. 
I think it finished me, he said. Here I am, Zephod Beeblebrox. I can go anywhere, do anything. I have the greatest ship in the known sky, a girl with whom things seem to be working out pretty well. Are they? As far as I can tell, I'm not an expert in personal relationships. Trillian raised her eyebrows. I am, he added, one hell of a guy. I can do anything I want, only I just don't have the faintest idea what. He paused. One thing, he further added, has suddenly ceased to lead to another, in contradiction of which he had another drink and slid gracelessly off his chair. Whilst he slept it off, Trillian did a little research in the ship's copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It had some advice to offer on drunkenness. Go to it, it said, and good luck. It was cross-referenced to the entry concerning the size of the universe and ways of coping with that. Then she found the entry on Han Wavell, an exotic holiday planet and one of the wonders of the galaxy. Han Wavell is a world which consists largely of fabulous ultra-luxury hotels and casinos, all of which have been formed by the natural erosion of wind and rain. The chances of this happening are more or less one to infinity against. Little is known of how this came about because none of the geophysicists probability statisticians, meteor analysts or bizarrologists who are so keen to research it can afford to stay there. Terrific, thought Trillian to herself, and within a few hours the great white running shoe ship was slowly powering down out of the sky beneath a hot brilliant sun towards a brightly coloured sandy spaceport. The ship was clearly causing a sensation on the ground and Trillian was enjoying herself. She heard Zaphod moving around and whistling somewhere in the ship. How are you? she said over the general intercom. Fine, he said brightly. Terribly well. Where are you? In the bathroom. What are you doing? Staying here. After an hour or two it became plain that he meant it and the ship returned to the sky without having once opened its hatchway. Hey-ho, said Eddie the computer. Trillian nodded patiently, tapped her fingers a couple of times, and pushed the intercom switch. I think that enforced fun is probably not what you need at this point. Probably not, replied Zaphod from wherever he was. I think a bit of physical challenge would help draw you out of yourself. Hey, whatever you think, I think, said Zaphod. Recreational impossibilities was a heading which caught Trillian's eye when, a short while later, she sat down to flip through the guide again, and, as the heart of gold rushed at improbable speeds in an indeterminate direction, she sipped a cup of something undrinkable from the Neutromatic drinks dispenser and read about how to fly. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on the subject of flying. There is an art, it says, or rather a knack to flying. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Pick a nice day, it suggests, and try it. The first part is easy. All it requires is simply the ability to throw yourself forward with all your weight and a willingness not to mind that it's going to hurt. That is, it's going to hurt if you fail to miss the ground. Most people fail to miss the ground, and if they are really trying properly, the likelihood is that they will fail to miss it fairly hard. Clearly, it is this second part, the missing, which presents the difficulties. One problem is that you have to miss the ground accidentally. It's no good deliberately intending to miss the ground because you won't. 
You have to have your attention suddenly distracted by something else when you're halfway there so that you are no longer thinking about falling or about the ground or about how much it's going to hurt if you fail to miss it. It is notoriously difficult to prize your attention away from these three things during the split second you have at your disposal, hence most people's failure and their eventual disillusionment with this exhilarating and spectacular sport. If, however, you are lucky enough to have your attention momentarily distracted at the crucial moment by, say, a gorgeous pair of legs, tentacles, pseudopodia, according to phylum and or personal inclination, or a bomb going off in your vicinity, or by suddenly spotting an extremely rare species of beetle crawling along a nearby twig, then in your astonishment you will miss the ground completely and remain bobbing just a few inches above it in what might seem to be a slightly foolish manner. This is a moment for superb and delicate concentration. Bob and float, float and bob. Ignore all considerations of your own weight and simply let yourself waft higher. Do not listen to what anybody says to you at this point because they are unlikely to say anything helpful. They are most likely to say something along the lines of Good God, you can't possibly be flying! It is vitally important not to believe them or they will suddenly be right. Waft higher and higher. Try a few swoops, gentle ones at first, then drift above the treetops, breathing regularly. Do not wave at anybody. When you have done this a few times, you will find the moment of distraction rapidly becomes easier and easier to achieve. You will then learn all sorts of things about how to control your flight, your speed, your manoeuvrability, and the trick usually lies in not thinking too hard about whatever you want to do, but just allowing it to happen as if it was going to anyway. You will also learn about how to land properly, which is something you will almost certainly cock up and cock up badly on your first attempt. There are private flying clubs you can join which help you achieve the all-important moment of distraction. They hire people with surprising bodies or opinions to leap out from behind bushes and exhibit and or explain them at the critical moments. Few genuine hitchhikers will be able to afford to join these clubs, but some may be able to get temporary employment at them. Trillian read this longingly, but reluctantly decided that Zaphod wasn't really in the right frame of mind for attempting to fly, or for walking through mountains, or for trying to get the Brantis Vogan civil service to acknowledge a change of address card, which were the other things listed under the heading Recreational Impossibilities. Instead, she flew the ship to Alicimanius Sinica, a world of ice, snow, mind-hurtling beauty and stunning cold. The trek from the snow plains of Liska to the summit of the ice-crystal pyramids of Sastantua is long and gruelling, even with jet skis and a team of Sinica snowhounds, but the view from the top, a view which takes in the Stin glacier fields, the shimmering prism mountains and the far ethereal dancing ice lights, is one which first freezes the mind and then slowly releases it to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. And Trillian, for one, felt that she could do with a bit of having her mind slowly released to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. They went into a low orbit. There lay the silver-white beauty of Alicimanius Sinica beneath them. Zaphod stayed in bed with one head stuck under a pillow and the other doing crosswords till late into the night. Trillian nodded patiently again, counted to a sufficiently high number and told herself that the important thing now was just to get Zaphod talking. She prepared, by dint of deactivating all the robot kitchen synthematics, the most fabulously delicious meal she could contrive. Delicately oiled meats, scented fruits, 
fragrant cheeses, fine older barren wines. She carried it through to him and asked if he felt like talking things through. Zarkov, said Zaphod. Trillian nodded patiently to herself, counted to an even higher number, tossed the tray lightly aside, walked to the transport room and just teleported herself the hell out of his life. She didn't even program any coordinates. She hadn't the faintest idea where she was going, she just went. A random row of dots flowing through the universe. Anything, she said to herself as she left, is better than this. Good job too, muttered Zaphod to himself, turned over and failed to go to sleep. The next day he restlessly paced the empty corridors of the ship, pretending not to look for her, though he knew she wasn't there. He ignored the computer's querulous demands to know just what the hell was going on around here by fitting a small electronic gag across a pair of its terminals. After a while, he began to turn down the lights. There was nothing to see. Nothing was about to happen. Lying in bed one night, and night was now virtually continuous on the ship, he decided to pull himself together to get things into some kind of perspective. He sat up sharply and started to pull clothes on he decided that there must be someone in the universe feeling more wretched, miserable and forsaken than himself, and he determined to set to and find him. Halfway to the bridge, it occurred to him that it might be Marvin, and he returned to bed. It was a few hours later than this, as he stomped disconsolately about the darkened corridors, swearing at cheerful doors, that he heard the WAP said, and it made him very nervous. He leant tensely against the corridor wall, and frowned like a man trying to unbend a corkscrew by telekinesis. He laid his fingertips against the wall and felt an unusual vibration. And now he could quite clearly hear slight noises and could hear where they were coming from. They were coming from the bridge. Moving his hand along the wall, he came across something he was glad to find. He moved on a little further, quietly. Computer, he hissed. Hmm? said the computer terminal nearest him, equally quietly. Is there someone on this ship? Hmm, said the computer. Well, who is it? <coughs> said the computer. What? <coughs> Zaphod buried one of his faces in two of his hands. Oh, Zarquan, he muttered to himself. Then he stared up the corridor towards the entrance to the bridge in the dim distance, from which more and purposeful noises were coming, and in which the gagged terminals were situated. Computer! he hissed again. Mm? When I ungag you, mm? remind me to punch myself in the mouth. Mm -mm. Either one. Now just tell me this. One for yes, two for no. Is it dangerous? Mmm. It is? Mmm. You didn't just go mmm twice. Mmm. 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 He inched his way up the corridor as if he would rather be yarding his way down it, which was true. He was within two yards of the door to the bridge when he suddenly realised to his horror that it was going to be nice to him, and he stopped dead. He hadn't been able to turn off the door's courtesy voice circuits. This doorway to the bridge was concealed from view within it because of the excitingly chunky way in which the bridge had been designed to curve round, and he had been hoping to enter unobserved. 
He leant despondently back against the wall again and said some words which his other head was quite shocked to hear. He peered at the dim pink outline of the door and discovered that in the darkness of the corridor he could just about make out the sensor field, which extended out into the corridor and told the door when there was someone there for whom it must open and to whom it must make a cheery and pleasant remark. He pressed himself hard back against the wall and edged himself towards the door, flattening his chest as much as he possibly could to avoid brushing against the very, very dim perimeter of the field. He held his breath and congratulated himself on having lain in bed sulking for the last few days, rather than trying to work out his feelings on chest expanders in the ship's gym. He then realised he was going to have to speak at this point. He took a series of very shallow breaths, and then said as quickly and as quietly as he could, Dor, if you can hear me, say so very, very quietly. Very, very quietly, the door murmured, I can hear you. Good. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to open. When you open, I do not want you to say that you enjoyed it, okay? Okay. And I don't want you to say to me that I have made a simple door very happy or that it is your pleasure to open for me and your satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done, okay? Okay. And I do not want you to ask me to have a nice day. You understand? I understand. Okay, said Zaphod, tensing himself. Open now. The door slid open quietly. Zaphod slipped quietly through. The door closed quietly behind him. Is that the way you like it, Mr. Beeblebrox? said the door out loud. I want you to imagine, said Zaphod to the group of white robots who swung round to stare at him at that point, that I have an extremely powerful Kilozap blaster pistol in my hand. There was an immensely cold and savage silence. The robots regarded him with hideously dead eyes. They stood very still. There was something intensely macabre about their appearance, especially to Zaphod, who had never seen one before or ever known anything about them. The cricket wars belonged to the ancient past of the galaxy, and Zaphod had spent most of his early history lessons plotting how he was going to have sex with the girl in the cyber cubicle next to him. And since his teaching computer had been an integral part of this plot, it had eventually had all its history circuits wiped and replaced with an entirely different set of ideas, which had then resulted in it being scrapped and sent to a home for degenerate cybermats whether it was followed by the girl who had inadvertently fallen deeply in love with the unfortunate machine, with the result A, that Zaphod never got near her, and B, that he missed out on a period of ancient history that would have been of inestimable value to him at this moment. He stared at them in shock. It was impossible to explain why, but their smooth and sleek white bodies seemed to be the utter embodiment of clean clinical evil. From their hideously dead eyes to their powerful, lifeless feet, they were clearly the calculated product of a mind that wanted simply to kill. Zaphod gulped in cold fear. They had been dismantling part of the rear bridge wall and had forced a passage through some of the vital innards of the ship. Through the tangled wreckage, Zaphod could see, with a further and worse sense of shock, that they were tunnelling towards the very heart of the ship, the heart of the improbability drive that had been so mysteriously created out of thin air, the heart of gold itself. 
the robot closest to him was regarding him in such a way as to suggest that it was measuring every smallest particle of his body, mind and capability. And when it spoke, what it said seemed to bear this impression out. Before going on to what it actually said, it is worth recording at this point that Zaphod was the first living organic being to hear one of these creatures speak for something over 10 billion years. If he had paid more attention to his ancient history lessons, and less to his organic being, he might have been more impressed by this honour. The robot's voice was like its body, cold, sleek and lifeless. It had almost a cultured rasp to it. It sounded as ancient as it was. It said, You do have a Kilozap blaster pistol in your hand. Zaphod didn't know what it meant for a moment, but then he glanced down at his own hand and was relieved to see that what he had found clipped to a wall bracket was indeed what he had thought it was. Yeah, he said in a kind of relieved sneer, which is quite tricky. Well, I wouldn't want to overtax your imagination, robot. For a while, nobody said anything, and Zaphod realised that the robots were obviously not here to make conversation, and that it was up to him. I can't help noticing that you have parked your ship, he said with a nod of one of his heads in the appropriate direction, through mine. There was no denying this. Without regard for any kind of proper dimensional behaviour, they had simply materialised their ship precisely where they wanted it to be, which meant that it was simply locked through the heart of gold as if they were nothing more than two combs. Again, they made no response to this, and Zaphod wondered if the conversation would gather any momentum if he phrased his part of it in the form of questions. Haven't you? he added. Yes, replied the robot. Ah, okay, said Zaphod. So what are you cats doing here? Silence. Robots, said Zaphod. What are you robots doing here? We have come rasped the robot, for the gold bale. Zaphod nodded. He waggled his gun to invite further elaboration. The robot seemed to understand this. The gold bale is part of the key we seek, continued the robot, to release our masters from cricket. Zaphod nodded again. He waggled his gun again. The key, continued the robot simply, was disintegrated in time and space. The golden bale is embedded in the device which drives your ship. It will be reconstituted in the key. Our masters shall be released. The universal readjustment will continue. Zaphod nodded again. What are you talking about? he said. A slightly pained expression seemed to cross the robot's totally expressionless face. It seemed to be finding the conversation depressing. Obliteration, it said. We seek the key, it repeated. We already have the wooden pillar, the steel pillar and the perspex pillar. In a moment we will have the gold bale. No, you won't. We will, stated the robot. No, you won't. It makes my ship work. In a moment, repeated the robot patiently, we will have the gold bale. You will not, said Zaphod. And then we must go, said the robot, in all seriousness, to a party. Oh, said Zaphod, startled. Can I come? No, said the robot. We are going to shoot you. Oh, yeah, said Zaphod, waggling his gun. Yes, said the robot, and they shot him. Zaphod was so surprised that they had to shoot him again before he fell down.
Chapter 12 Shh, said Slarty Bartfast. Listen and watch. Night had now fallen on ancient cricket. The sky was dark and empty. The only light was coming from the nearby town, from which pleasant convivial sounds were drifting quietly on the breeze. They stood beneath a tree from which heady fragrances wafted around them. Arthur squatted and felt the informational illusion of the soil and the grass. He ran it through his fingers. The soil seemed heavy and rich, the grass strong. It was hard to avoid the impression that this was a thoroughly delightful place in all respects. The sky was, however, extremely blank, and seemed to Arthur to cast a certain chill over the otherwise idyllic, if currently invisible, landscape. Still, he supposed, it's a question of what you're used to. He felt a tap on his shoulder and looked up. Slarty Bartfast was quietly directing his attention to something down the other side of the hill. He looked and could just see some faint lights dancing and waving and moving slowly in their direction. As they came nearer, sounds became audible too, and soon the dim lights and noises resolved themselves into a small group of people who were walking home across the hill towards the town. They walked quite near the watchers, beneath the tree, swinging lanterns which made soft and crazy lights dance among the trees and grass, chattering contentedly, and actually singing a song about how terribly nice everything was, how happy they were, how much they enjoyed working on the farm, and how pleasant it was to be going home to see their wives and children, with a lilting chorus to the effect that the flowers were smelling particularly nice at this time of the year, and that it was a pity the dog had died seeing as it liked them so much. Arthur could almost imagine Paul McCartney sitting with his feet up by the fire one evening, humming it to Linda and wondering what to buy with the proceeds, and thinking probably Essex. The masters of cricket, breathed Slarty Bartfast in sepulchral tones. Coming as it did so hard upon the heels of his own thoughts about Essex, this remark caused Arthur a moment's confusion. Then the logic of the situation imposed itself on his scattered mind, and he discovered that he still didn't understand what the old man meant. What? he said. The masters of cricket, said Slarty Bartfast again, and if his breathing had been sepulchral before, this time he sounded like someone in Hades with bronchitis. Arthur peered at the group and tried to make sense of what little information he had at his disposal at this point. The people in the group were clearly alien, if only because they seemed a little tall, thin, angular, and almost as pale as to be white, but otherwise they appeared remarkably pleasant. A little whimsical, perhaps. One wouldn't necessarily want to spend a long coach journey with them, but the point was that if they deviated in any way from being good, straightforward people, it was in being perhaps too nice rather than not nice enough. So why all this rasping lung work from Slarty Bartfast, which would seem more appropriate to a radio commercial for one of those nasty films about chainsaw operators taking their work home with them? Then, this cricket angle was a tough one too. He hadn't quite fathomed the connection between what he knew as cricket and what... Slarty Bartfast interrupted his train of thought at this point as if sensing what was going through his mind. The game you know as cricket, he said, and his voice still seemed to be wandering lost in subterranean passages, is just one of those curious freaks of racial memory. 
which can keep images alive in the mind eons after their true significance has been lost in the mists of time. Of all the races in the galaxy, only the English could possibly revive the memory of the most horrific wars ever to sunder the universe and transform it into what I'm afraid is generally regarded as an incomprehensibly dull and pointless game. Rather fond of it myself, he added, but in most people's eyes you have been inadvertently guilty of the most grotesquely bad taste, particularly the bit about the little red ball hitting the wicket. That's very nasty. Um, said Arthur with a reflective frown to indicate that his cognitive synapses were coping with this as best they could. Um, and these said Slarty Bartfast, slipping back into crypt guttural and indicating the group of cricket men who had now walked past them, are the ones who started it all. And it will start tonight. Come, we will follow and see why. They slipped out from underneath the tree and followed the cheery party along the dark hill path. Their natural instinct was to tread quietly and stealthily in pursuit of their quarry, though, as they were simply walking through a recorded informational illusion, they could as easily have been wearing euphoniums and woad for all the notice their quarry would have taken of them. Arthur noticed that a couple of members of the party were now singing a different song. It came lilting back to them through the soft night air and was a sweet romantic ballad which would have netted McCartney, Kent and Sussex and enabled him to put in a fair offer for Hampshire. "'You must surely know,' said Slarty Bartfast to Ford. What it is that is about to happen? Me? said Ford. No. Did you not learn ancient galactic history when you were a child? I was in the cyber cubicle behind Zaphod, said Ford. It was very distracting, which isn't to say that I didn't learn some pretty stunning things. At this point, Arthur noticed a curious feature to the song that the party were singing. The Middle Eight Bridge, which would have had McCartney firmly consolidated in Winchester and gazing intently over the Test Valley to the rich pickings of the new forest beyond, had some curious lyrics. The songwriter was referring to meeting with a girl not under the moon or beneath the stars, but above the grass, which struck Arthur as being a little prosaic. Then he looked up again at the bewilderingly blank sky and had the distinct feeling that there was an important point here. If only he could grasp what it was. It gave him a feeling of being alone in the universe, and he said so. No, said Slarty Bartfast, with a slight quickening of his step. The people of cricket have never thought to themselves, we are alone in the universe. They are surrounded by a huge dust cloud, you see, their single sun with its single world, and they are right out on the utmost eastern edge of the galaxy. Because of the dust cloud, there has never been anything to see in the sky. At night it is totally blank, during the day there is the sun, but you can't look directly at that, so they don't. They are hardly aware of the sky. It's as if they had a blind spot which extended 180 degrees from horizon to horizon. You see, the reason why they have never thought we are alone in the universe is that, until tonight, they don't know about the universe. Until tonight. He moved on, leaving the words ringing in the air behind him. Imagine, he said, never even thinking we are alone simply because it has never occurred to you to think that there's any other way to be. He moved on again. 
I'm afraid this is going to be a little unnerving, he added. As he spoke, they became aware of a very thin, roaring scream high up in the sightless sky above them. They glanced upwards in alarm, but for a moment or two could see nothing. Then Arthur noticed that the people in the party in front of them had heard the noise, but that none of them seemed to know what to do with it. They were glancing around themselves in consternation, left, right, forwards, backwards, even at the ground. It never occurred to them to look upwards. The profoundness of the shock and horror they emanated a few moments later when the burning wreckage of a spaceship came hurtling and screaming out of the sky and crashed about half a mile from where they were standing was something that you had to be there to experience. Some speak of the heart of gold in hushed tones. Some of the starship Bistromath. Many speak of the legendary and gigantic starship Titanic, a majestic and luxurious cruise liner launched from the great shipbuilding asteroid complexes of Artrefactivol some hundreds of years ago now, and with good reason. It was sensationally beautiful, staggeringly huge, and more pleasantly equipped than any ship in what now remains of history, see note below on the campaign for real time, but it had the misfortune to be built in the very earliest days of improbability physics, long before this difficult and cussed branch of knowledge was fully, or at all, understood. The designers and engineers decided, in their innocence, to build a prototype improbability field into it, which was meant, supposedly, to ensure that it was infinitely improbable that anything would ever go wrong with any part of the ship. They did not realise that because of the quasi-reciprocal and circular nature of all improbability calculations, anything that was infinitely improbable was actually very likely to happen almost immediately. The Starship Titanic was a monstrously pretty sight as it lay beached like a silver Arcturan megavoid whale amongst the laser-lit tracery of its construction gantries. A brilliant cloud of pins and needles of light against the deep interstellar blackness, but when launched it did not even manage to complete its very first radio message, an SOS, before undergoing a sudden and gratuitous total existence failure. However, the same event which saw the disastrous failure of one science in its infancy also witnessed the apotheosis of another. It was conclusively proved that more people watched Tri-D TV coverage of the launch than actually existed at the time, and this has now been recognised as the greatest achievement ever in the science of audience research. Another spectacular media event of the time was a supernova, which the star Isladins underwent a few hours later. Isladins is the star around which most of the galaxy's major insurance underwriters live, or rather lived. But whilst these spaceships and other great ones which come to mind, such as the galactic fleet battleships, the GSS Daring the GSS Audacity and the GSS Suicidal Insanity are all spoken of with awe, pride, enthusiasm, affection, admiration, regret, jealousy, resentment, in fact most of the better-known emotions, the one which regularly commands the most actual astonishment was Cricket One, the first spaceship ever built by the people of Cricket. This is not because it was a wonderful ship. It wasn't. It was a crazy piece of near-junk, it looked as if it had been knocked up in somebody's backyard, and this was, in fact, precisely where it had been knocked up. The astonishing thing about the ship was not that it was done well, it wasn't, but that it was done at all. 
The period of time which had elapsed between the moment that the people of Cricket had discovered that there was such a thing as space and the launching of this, their first space ship, was almost exactly a year. Ford Prefect was extremely grateful as he strapped himself in that this was just another informational illusion and that he was therefore completely safe. In real life, it wasn't a ship he would have set foot in for all the rice wine in China. Extremely rickety was one phrase which sprang to mind, and please may I get out was another. This is going to fly, said Arthur, giving gaunt looks at the lashed together pipework and wiring which festooned the cramped interior of the ship. Slarty Bartfast assured him that it would, that they were perfectly safe, and that it was all going to be extremely instructive and not a little harrowing. Ford and Arthur decided just to relax and be harrowed. Why not, said Ford, go mad. In front of them, and of course totally unaware of their presence for the very good reason that they weren't actually there, were the three pilots. They also had constructed the ship. They had been on the hill path that night singing wholesome, heartwarming songs. Their brains had been very slightly turned by the nearby crash of the alien spaceship. They had spent weeks stripping every tiniest last secret out of the wreckage of the burnt-up spaceship, all the while singing lilting spaceship-stripping ditties. They had then built their own ship, and this was it. This was their ship, and they were currently singing a little song about that too, expressing the twin joys of achievement and ownership. The chorus was a little poignant, and told of their sorrow that their work had kept them such long hours in the garage away from the company of their wives and children, who had missed them terribly, but had kept them cheerful by bringing them continual stories of how nicely the puppy was growing up. Pow! They took off. They roared into the sky like a ship that knew precisely what it was doing. No way, said Ford a while later, after they had recovered from the shock of acceleration and were climbing up out of the planet's atmosphere. No way, he repeated, does anyone design and build a ship like this in a year, no matter how motivated. I don't believe it. Prove it to me and I still won't believe it. He shook his head thoughtfully and gazed out of a tiny port at the nothingness outside it. The trip passed uneventfully for a while, and Slarty Bartfast fast wound them through it. Very quickly, therefore, they arrived at the inner perimeter of the hollow, spherical dust cloud which surrounded their sun and home planet, occupying, as it were, the next orbit out. It was more as if there was a gradual change in the texture and consistency of space. The darkness seemed now to thrum and ripple past them. It was a very cold darkness, a very blank and heavy darkness, it was the darkness of the night sky of cricket. The coldness and heaviness and blankness of it took a slow grip on Arthur's heart, and he felt acutely aware of the feelings of the cricket pilots which hung in the air like a thick static charge. They were now on the very boundary of the historical consciousness of their race. This was the very limit beyond which none of them had ever speculated, or even known that there was any speculation to be done. The darkness of the cloud buffeted at the ship. Inside was the silence of history. Their historic mission was to find out if there was anything or anywhere on the other side of the sky from which the wrecked spaceship could have come. Another world, maybe. Strange and incomprehensible though this thought was to the enclosed minds of those who had lived beneath the sky of cricket. History was gathering itself to deliver another blow. Still the darkness thrummed at them, the blank enclosing darkness. It seemed closer and closer, thicker and thicker, heavier and heavier, and suddenly it was gone. They flew out of the cloud.
They saw the staggering jewels of the night in their infinite dust, and their minds sang with fear. For a while they flew on, motionless against the starry sweep of the galaxy, itself motionless against the infinite sweep of the universe, and then they turned round. It'll have to go, the men of cricket said as they headed back for home. On the way back they sang a number of tuneful and reflective songs on the subjects of peace, justice, morality, culture, sport, family life and the obliteration of all other life forms. <laughs>